This is the Concealed Carry Podcast, episode number 219. And welcome to the Concealed Carry Podcast, part of the ConcealedCarry.com network. I am your host, Riley Bowman, and uh, I am joined by Jacob Paulson. Hello, Riley. Hey, I noticed that you have a firearm sitting on your shelf. I have a firearm. I, I, I do, in fact. Are you just noticing this? This has been here for like two months now. It's well, me. I just thought I'd point it out that Riley has a firearm not secured in a safe sitting on the <laughs> shelf above his desk in his office. And I think this is a horrible, gross uh, safety violation, Riley. It's Bowman. a gross misdemeanor indeed. Uh, yeah, the firearm that he is referencing, for those that are not viewing live on Facebook or, or after the fact, uh, this is in fact a lice, licensed. Yeah, I mean, it is Serialized. licensed. Serialized. I, Serialized. Thank you. That's the word I was looking for firearm but it is an unassembled lower receiver an ar-15 with our concealedcarry.com logo on it we we sold these at uh during black friday didn't we yeah yeah we did um i mean it's really no more than a weapon than, than the books on the bookcase next to it <laughs> but nonetheless it is a serialized <laughs> firearm <laughs> yeah so i just had to make fun of you a little bit it's, it's pretty cool looking so i'm thinking about um Moving this over to my AR pistol, I think. Yeah, because I think that'd be pretty cool. And I've got a custom upper that is uh, that, that has been built that I'm going to stick on uh, on something else. And, and yeah, so anyway, good stuff. I, I'm surprised though it took you this long to notice. You know, me showing off my you know proudly my concealedcarry.com gear. I'm yeah, also wearing okay. my Guardian Nation okay. shirt today. Yeah, whoo, way to go, the Guardian Nation members out there. And uh, yeah, so today, folks, we this is our news episode of the podcast for the week. We've got some crazy stories today. We always have crazy stories. I mean, what week in the firearms industry is not filled with drama and controversy, <laughs> right? So we look forward to getting into it with you all today. Um, but first, I do want to mention a couple of little sponsor spots, if you will. And our first one is that tonight we have a special Guardian Nation Live event. Yes, I know some of you have been waiting for that. And we're getting back into the swing of things with that. We got some, actually, we're getting things lined up uh, each month going forward, doing a lot, uh, being a lot more organized in that regard. And tonight we have as our special guest, Beth Alcazar. Who is uh, she's a writer for uh, the United States Concealed Carry Association in the in the Concealed Carry magazine. Uh, she works for uh, for USCCA, and she is a, a great uh, advocate for uh, their organization. And we look forward to talking with her tonight as our special guest of Guardian Nation Live. And you can check that out by going to concealedcarry.com forward slash G-N-B-E-T-H-A. So G-N-B-E-T-H-A. So if you head on over to concealedcarry.com forward slash G-N-B-E-T-H-A for Beth Alcazar, uh, you can. there's a little uh, bio about Beth there on that page and also down towards the bottom a link where you can uh, uh Find out where to watch that. So if you're not already a member of Guardian Nation, that's basically what it's going to tell you to do is you got to go get signed up today. All right, so you have a few hours to do that. Today's episode is also brought to you by the CERT Pocket Pistol. And we just love 
anything made by Next Level Training uh, with their CERT training products. Uh, the pocket pistol is ideal for those of you that carry a subcompact or microcompact, like a like typically a single stack nine millimeter or something along those lines. Uh, I was really excited when they launched that product. What last year? I think it was. It's been about 20, a year. Yeah, now. 20, 2017, 2016? I don't know. It took a while for it to actually get out into the market, I have no, I noticed, but I think it was actually announced about a year ago or so. Um, anyway, so really cool product. If you want to check that out, go to concealedcarry.com forward slash cert PP. S-I-R-T-P-P. So for pocket pistol, all right? Concealedcarry.com forward slash cert, S-I-R-T-P-P. All righty. So with that... Uh, those are our, our sponsors for today's episode. Appreciate your support of the podcast by supporting the products and companies that we mention on the podcast. It allows us to keep doing what we do here at concealedcarry.com. Now is time for the case of the week segment from attorney Andrew Branca. And so we hope you enjoy this content and continue to enjoy this content. In fact, this is one segment that we've added to the podcast that uh, consistently I get emails about and people mentioning it and, and thanking us for doing this. Uh, so we will keep doing it as long as we can and as long as Andrew keeps sending us these audio segments. So next up, this week's Case of the Week with Andrew Branca. Thanks, Concealed Carry Podcast, for having me back on for another Law of Self-Defense Case of the Week. I'm attorney Andrew Branca for LawofSelfDefense.com. This Case of the Week is provided for educational purposes only. This week's case is State v. Lau in a decision handed down by the Montana Supreme Court on April 17, 2018. It involves the element of proportionality in a self-defense claim. Specifically, whether a defendant's use of a pistol caliber carbine to defend against the thrown punch was a reasonable use of defensive force. As usual with appellate use of force decisions, at the core of this case, we have a great deal of human dysfunction and poor judgment. In particular, we have a defendant, Lau, who decides to intervene in a domestic dispute between a living couple under circumstances in which the boyfriend of that couple, the eventual victim in this case, had reason to suspect that the defendant had a romantic interest in his girlfriend. On the day in question, the boyfriend and girlfriend were running errands using the boyfriend, the victim's pickup truck, and apparently the keys to the truck were lost. The girlfriend called the defendant, Lau, to pick her up and drive her home so she could retrieve a spare key, and the defendant did so. Shortly thereafter, the victim, the boyfriend, also arrived at the home where, remember, he lived with the girlfriend, and an altercation ensued between the defendant and the victim. The defendant called 911 and ended up on the front porch locked out of the home. Did the defendant wait for the police to show up? Nope. The defendant retrieved a 9mm carbine and re-entered the home through a back door, and the altercation with the victim continued. The defendant fired one shot into the floor as a warning shot, was punched in the face by the victim, and then shot the victim fatally in the neck. The defendant was charged with deliberate homicide, and a trial argued self-defense. As we should all know by now, a claim of self-defense requires particular legal elements in order to be valid, and one of those elements is proportionality. 
the degree of defensive force used must be proportional to the degree of the attacking force. If the defensive force is disproportionately greater, the element of proportionality is lost in the self-defense claim and the claim of self-defense collapses. Obviously, the defendant's gunshot to the victim's neck constituted deadly force. The legal question on self-defense, then, on this element of proportionality, is whether this deadly force by the defendant was proportional to the force threatened by the victim, that is, the punch to the defendant's face. During closing arguments, the prosecution said the following to the jury, quote, If someone's going to punch you in Montana, you can't shoot them. Life's too valuable. Unless you had reason to believe, and you believe, genuinely believe, that's a reasonable belief, and we talked about this, that they would cause serious bodily injury. And you have an instruction on serious bodily injury, injury that you're not going to walk away from. You could have broken bones, death, long-term impairment. If you reasonably believe someone is going to cause that type of harm to you, you can shoot them, but you can't shoot them if they punch you. The defendant's lawyer contested this representation of the law in their own closing statement to the jury, especially the prosecutor's claim that a punch would constitute a threat of serious bodily injury only if, quote, you're not going to walk away from it, close quote. In particular, the defendant noted that a blow to the head could cause a potentially fatal closed head injury from which a victim might, quote unquote, walk away only to die some hours later. The defendant also referenced to the jury several cases in which a single punch had, in fact, caused serious bodily injury. The jury ultimately convicted the defendant of the charge of deliberate homicide, and the trial court sentenced the defendant to 52 years in the Montana State Prison. The defendant appealed his conviction on the basis that the prosecution misrepresented Montana law on whether a punch represented a deadly force threat against which a firearm could be used in proportional defense. In essence, the argument being made by the defendant is that because a thrown punch can potentially result in serious bodily harm or death, it ought to be considered deadly force simply as a matter of law. I know from the frequency with which this issue comes up in my classes that this is a common belief, or at least a desired belief, Normal, law-abiding folks don't want to be punched, naturally, and they'd like the law to allow them to use deadly defensive force, to wit their concealed carry pistol, against a punch on the grounds that a punch has the potential to cause death or grave bodily injury. But that's not what the law allows, for the simple reason that the vast majority of punches do not result in death or grave bodily injury, and the courts are unwilling to treat every casual thrown punch as a deadly force threat that can be countered with shots fired. Now, the courts do recognize that there are circumstances in which a barehanded attack can constitute a deadly force attack against which deadly force can be used, but only in exceptional cases where there are some aggravating circumstances to differentiate that barehanded attack from the norm. For example, if a barehanded attacker is much larger or stronger or has some exceptional fighting ability relative to the defender, or the beating is of a sustained nature, or as in the case of the George Zimmerman trial, where the bare hands are being used to smash a victim's head repeatedly into a sidewalk. But all of that is a factual question that must be determined by a jury, depending on the particular circumstances of the case. In this case, 
The jury apparently decided that the victim's thrown punch did not constitute a deadly force threat. They accordingly discarded the defendant's claim of self-defense based on the loss of the element of proportionality in that self-defense claim, and they found the defendant guilty of the homicide charge. The bottom line is that deadly defensive force can be used only to neutralize a deadly force attack, and a thrown punch will not be automatically deemed a deadly force attack as a matter of law simply because it has the potential to be such. A defender who wants to use deadly defensive force to counter the threat of a thrown punch had better be prepared to show the particular unusual circumstances that made that specific punch a deadly force threat. In this particular case, the Montana Supreme Court heard the appeal, noted that the jury had been given essentially correct jury instructions on this issue of proportionality. They had evaluated the evidence presented to them, and they had arrived at a verdict consistent with the law and evidence. The Montana Supreme Court unanimously decided they were not going to second-guess the jury, and they affirmed the defendant's conviction and 52-year sentence. If you enjoy this content, I invite you to join us for the Law of Self-Defense live show every Wednesday, 2 p.m. Eastern. It's totally free to either participate live or to watch the recording after each show. For more information, point your browser to lawselfdefense.com forward slash show. Remember, you carry a gun so you're hard to kill. Know the law so you're hard to convict. I'm attorney Andrew Branca for lawofselfdefense.com. Wow. Uh, that's some fancy new music. Yeah, that's uh that's all Andrew, so not, nothing I did. Uh <laughs> Yeah. Well, what do you think? I mean, that's I I commented here in the chat that I mean, what a great summary of this area of the law because he he was absolutely correct. That this is a common question that I see in concealed carry courses that I teach, Jacob, and I know you probably experience the same thing where people ask this you know, hypothetical of, well, what if, you know, this guy is throwing a punch at my head? And I mean, that could kill me. So can I use deadly force? Yeah, this is, this is a tough thing because we, we all love concreteness. We're humans, yeah. our human brains crave black, white, concrete stuff. And so to be told something like, well, you sort of have to decide in that moment, if there's really a, a threat to your life or not and act accordingly, isn't very concrete. And, and obviously, you know, the nature of our legal system, right? We're, we're all subjected to uh, what a 12, 12 of our peers think would be reasonable to believe under those circumstances based on the evidence gathered and presented. So it, here, here's just a thought, though, from my, from my end. I see a lot of stories that we, that we get, that we read, that we review, or that we don't get to cover on the podcast where I get this sense that a lot of our community, they carry a gun because they're scared of what could be out there, as do I, right? Where I'm, I'm, I'm concerned about uh, my potential security or safety or that of my loved ones in our current society. And so I, I carry a gun. And what happens is in that context, there's a certain amount of fear, I think, that comes from a lack of preparedness, a lack of training uh, that, that causes a person to what I'll call jump, jump the gun. Yep. And jumping the gun, you know, to use a horrible cliche that actually in this case is a perfect pun, is a problem because what happens is at the slightest bit of a threat, there might be a tendency to just go right to the gun. 
yeah. you know, because it's almost like, oh, this is what I've been scared of. I knew it. I knew it would happen to me. Thank goodness I have this gun. Boom, I got it out and I started firing. Without that, that, that a little bit of deliberation, that cognition that's important and necessary as an armed citizen to say, hmm, you know, is, is this really a deadly threat or not? And do I have other options? And, and I'll add that, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to, to pick on anybody here because some people, some, some people in some situations, you don't have any other options. Maybe you're, you know, your person is at a physical disadvantage, or maybe you don't really have any, any means of escape or whatever. And I'm not talking here about what's legal. I'm, I'm, I'm talking here about what's moral and ethical. And that often gets, you know, corresponds with what's, what's, what's legal or justifiable. So anyway, just, I guess my two cents there that, um, I don't, I don't think it's an epidemic, but I do think we need to uh, cautiously be thinking about, you know, does my lack of training or knowledge lead me to a situation where I might jump the gun? Yeah. Really great thoughts, Jacob. And, you know, so I, I don't know that I can really add anything to the discussion. Uh, Andrew, obviously, so very succinctly covered, you know, that case and what it means for us. And I realize that is a case specific to Mon- or yeah, to Montana. It was the Montana Supreme Court that that gave that ruling. But I, I think what Andrew's trying to get at with that uh, is, you know, in, in the application to everybody else, no matter where you live, is that I think that's a pretty... I, I think that's. I think the ruling that came out of that case is probably what you would find just about regardless of where you are, right? Yeah, proportionality is still proportionality. Yeah. Yeah. So, really, really fascinating case, and it just. It, I, I plan on using that in all of my classes going forward. Um, I, I might just point people to this episode to say, listen to the case of the week segment with Andrew, you know, because that just really nailed nailed it on the head. This is also timely because one of our news stories later in the episode is kind of similar to to a certain degree. Basically, you have a woman that uh, approaches a man that is trying to steal or break into her car, and she draws her gun when he starts coming at her. And we don't have a lot of details, and so we'll save that story for later in the episode here. But I looked at that and kind of went, okay, you know, this I think is timely because now he's not throwing a punch or whatever in that situation. But it's just kind of one of those gray areas, like you talked about, Jacob. We want things to be black and white, and unfortunately, so often they are not. And circumstances vary from case to case, and for, with individual to individual. But anyway, good stuff to to consider and be aware of, and um, also a re- great reminder to try to do better to prepare ourselves in a variety of ways, physically, mentally, you know, and also with the shooting skills, but that's just a small piece of it, right? We got to have all of the tools, I think, in the tool bag. Before we get to our first story, I just want to mention that we recently launched a uh, new version of our app. Now we've had our app for years. We haven't really been pushing it much for a while because frankly, it it just wasn't that great. Uh, We knew that we wanted to rework it. But building apps takes time, and it's it's difficult, and it also costs a lot of money. And fortunately, we were able to hire a great developer that's been a part of our team now for the last year, almost, almost a year. Almost a year. Almost yeah. a year. Um, our, our app developer, Dylan, is just a, a, an amazing guy, and he's done an amazing job getting the latest iteration of the app put together, built from scratch, from the ground up. And it's pretty dang phenomenal for what it is. It's not perfect. There might still be a few little minor bugs here and there. Been a few things that people have discovered along the way. 
And it's only only going to get better because we're going to add more great stuff to it. You need to go check out the Concealed Carry Gun Tools app on the uh, Apple i iStore or iStore iTunes not iTunes. What am I trying to say? The Apple App Store. There we go. They're really the ones that coined the phrase App Store, right? And also Google Play. So go mm-hmm. check out the Concealed Carry. It's still called that, right? Concealed Carry Gun Tools app. It is, yeah. And a, a one point of clarification, you know, as Riley said, if you've tried it before and you were disappointed, please give it another shot. Absolutely. Uh, we would love to earn your, your five-star review. And another point is that for those of you who are Android people, who are Google Play people, if you already have our old phone on your app, it won't automatically update. You actually have to go into Google Play, uninstall the old version, and install the new one. So, And for those of you who don't already have it, you go to Google Play and you search Console Carry Gun Tools, you'll see it twice the old one and the new one. So just pay attention. Uh, the title says something like legacy on the old one. So you know that's not the correct one. It, it's impossible to delete an old app from Google, believe it or not. And based on all the changes we made, hmm. we had to submit it afresh. So sorry for the confusion for you Android people, but make sure you download the latest version, uh, which is listed uh, uniquely or independently on Android. If you need a link to just, if you want to just download it correctly, just immediately, just in your phone, open up your browser and type in concealedcarry.com forward slash mobile app and that'll automatically detect what device you have and take you to the corresponding correct place to download the mm. latest version of the app. Riley, uh, just real quick, what is your favorite part of the app? I think my favorite part is probably the most uh I think utility part of it and that is and I'm pulling it up and looking at it right now. Basically kind of the I, I think of it as sort of the legal section of the app. Um it it it's not exactly titled that. It's actually titled maps. But what people might not realize is that in the maps section of the app, uh, that's where you'll find a really nifty reciprocity map builder tool. But a subset of that is the laws. And there's just a really great, easy to understand, quick to, to pull up and just summarize really fast. Uh, it's a summary of all the laws of, of, of the 50 states as it relates to gun carry, possession, use, uh, concealed carry, and so forth. So those two pieces in the app are, are I, cause just because I think it, it's so you, it has such utility for the everyday carrier, especially if you're on the road at all. You can very quickly check your reciprocity, check the laws for where you're going, and bam, and it's all right in there. And the coolest thing of, of all uh, to this app, besides that really great feature of the app that I just mentioned, is that it's all 100% completely free. And there's no, there's no upgrade. There's no ads. There's nothing. This is just phew, free. Here you go. Unlike there are some com- other competing apps that try to do some similar things and they're not always free. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's no in-app purchases. Um, Plus ours is just better. Period. Yeah, true. Uh, here's a comment from uh, one of our users. He says, uh, I've only spent a few minutes with the new app, but it's immediately apparent that, that this, uh, that this, not a few tweaks to the previous app, but a brand new animal altogether looks great. Navigating within the app is quite intuitive. Now to uninstall the other apps I've been using to stay abreast of reciprocity and transportation issues while traveling. Thanks. Bam. So it really was our objective with this app to get rid of all the other gun apps on your phone. That was really our thing. It's like, and that's why it's taken so long to build from scratch again, uh, is because it's not just the newsfeed of our articles, though that's in there. It's not just our forums, but that's in there too. It's not just our reciprocity map builder. That's there. It's not just our business directory with 86,000 gun businesses and gun-free zones you know, near you, but that's there too. It's not just our legal summaries for all 50 states, but that's there. And it's not just our training log where you can log all your training and practice, but that's there too. <laughs> so <laughs> it's, just, it's just very 
comprehensive, and we hope you'll give it a shot. And and we would love if you lo- if you like it and you enjoy it, please review it uh, or give it a rating on Google Play or the App Store. If you have any constructive, helpful feedback, send us an email. Yeah, cool. Check it out. Well, concealedcarry.com mo- forward slash mobile app. Yeah, from from your mobile device, that link will take you right to the right place. Perfect. Now for the news. <laughs> We've delayed long enough and we still have so much content to cover. Here we go. All right. First up, um, and this is a solemn story uh, be- because it really truly is. Last week, it was re- just a few days ago, it was reported um, in Florida. Two Florida deputies were shot dead in a suspected ambush. Um, this According to, we're reading from a story on the New York Post. Uh, the, the, this story obviously was all over the place. You had two deputies uh, sitting in, and my browser just totally froze, by the way, so now I can't. <laughs> well, I can tell everybody what happened. <laughs> I, I know what happened, but I want to make sure I state. Come on. It, it, it's it's frozen. It's not going anywhere. So take over. Don't Jacob. worry. We'll let the Windows computer do it. Those oh, poor apps. There it goes. So two sheriffs are killed in Florida. Uh, no, deputies, excuse me, not sheriffs, but deputies of the sheriff's office. Mm-hmm. These officers were eating at a Chinese restaurant in the city of Trenton, Florida, which is a little bit west of Gainesville. And essentially, the shooter walks up and starts shooting through a window. So from outside the restaurant, the shooter is shooting into the restaurant. And uh, it doesn't say how many shots were fired, but it does, it does say that the uh, deputies were dead when yeah. You know, when the uh, response, you know, the first responders arrived. So I'm, I'm assuming there were multiple shots fired. Once the gunman shoots and, and you know, kills, guns down both deputies, he takes his own life, and that's it. That's really the end of the story. It's very sad, uh, very unfortunate, and debatably some things we can learn from this. But, but ultimately, this is this is a horrible tragedy. It really is. It. A reminder, obviously, to any of our law enforcement officers out there listening to the podcast. I know there there are many of you uh, because I get your messages and I see your emails. Um, many of you probably don't even need the reminder, but it's a great reminder nonetheless. And it's also a great reminder to no matter who you are, everybody, of really the, the need to be situationally aware at all times and all places. And that's really hard and really challenging to do. We can't be, to be honest with you, we can't be 100% perfectly, you know, head on a swivel all the time, looking at everything. Like it just isn't physically uh, or mentally possible. However, we need to, we need to do the best we can. And, and and this one's such a bizarre story. It's bizarre because this guy walks up, shoots through the window. You know, there's such a tendency probably that when you're inside a, a place, a business, for instance, sitting down, eating lunch, whatever it is, that you're probably a little bit more focused on what's inside that that space, inside that building, and less concerned with what's outside. Because I would think that most of the time, somebody that's going to ambush a couple of cops like this are probably going to walk in and do it inside. This guy instead decided to shoot through the window of the exterior of the building into the building. And um, frankly, amazingly, and I don't mean amazing in a good way, but just it's amazing to me that he actually managed to connect shots on these two poor cops uh, and 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 their lives through the window. I mean, it just uh, it just wasn't their day, unfortunately, and that that's what's so sad about it. Uh, but Let's you know do everything we can to be aware, and I'll probably be watching outside the windows a lot more closely now as well. Mm-hmm. Yep, good summary. 
Next up, so another business, another restaurant, another shooting. Uh, this one obviously getting a lot of news in the last day or two. Uh, the Waffle House shooting, where we we know now that we've got uh, uh, what is it, four dead, and uh, another additional four wounded. Um, this story, I think, initially said three, but that has been updated. So four four have now uh, passed away from their wounds. I think there was one that uh, died at the hospital. So we had a shooter that went into the Waffle House carrying an AR-15. I'm not going to mention his name. Uh, it doesn't matter. Uh, but what we do know about him is that he was probably not, not mentally stable. Uh, he had done some crazy things in the past. He was arrested outside the White House as he tried to gain access, I guess, to the White House and ultimately President Trump as he desired an interview or a meeting with President Trump. And what I also read is that uh, his father was advised to you know, not let him have access to or, or, or contact with weapons. And it appears as though the weapon that was used in this Waffle House shooting came from his father. So all of this is incredibly tragic and sad, terrible. Uh, happened, of course, in, in Nashville, Tennessee area. Uh, shouldn't have happened, but it did. And on the positive side of things, what I mean is, you know, out of these terrible things, we see amazing things that do happen, uh, amazing feats, and we have a hero in this case. And that hero is 29-year-old. We will make sure we give him credit. And once again, my, I don't know, the whole, I think the whole computer is just overwhelmed today, Jacob. Uh, for some reason, something is draining resources, but I'm not doing anything different than our usual podcast. So I can't miraculous or somehow scroll down just to see this guy's name. <laughs> James yeah. Shaw, J- James James Shaw, Shaw Jr. Jr. I got it. it. It finally scrolled. It's just delaying. I don't know what's up, so I apologize for that. 29-year-old James Shaw Jr., who was wounded in the attack, I believe uh, withstood some uh, injuries to his arm and hand as he attempted to defend himself and others. Uh, and he is just an amazing individual, I think. Situation was basically that the perpetrator of the crime was uh, in process of shooting up the place, and James Shaw Jr. was near the restroom taking cover throughout a lot of that. And at some point, the shooter uh, began, you know, uh, what's the word? He was looking at his weapon and and uh, uh, fussing with it. You know, trying. I think he was trying to perform a reload or something. Maybe he had had a malfunction. I don't think that's been said necessarily, but he basically was trying to do something with his gun. It appears to be a reload. And in that moment, James Shaw Jr. saw the opportunity to jump up and tackle the guy. And in the process, was able to wrestle away the weapon, toss it over the counter uh, into the kind of cooking area, whatever, of the restaurant. And that was enough to cause the attacker to break off the attack and escape. That's crazy. Yeah, it is pretty crazy. And this will be another story that both sides will use to perfectly justify their own narrative, right? On the uh, anti-gun side, you'll say things like, oh, this is proof that when people have to reload, we can charge them. So magazine capacity limitations are so justified 
uh, you know, there you have it. Oh, and this AR-15, so deadly. You know, how how dare he? On the flip side, you'll have the uh, pro-gun people. You know, we're going to say things like, you know, Waffle House has a, has a no-gun policy. This is a gun-free zone. None of the people in there, uh, if following the Waffle House policy, would be allowed to have their own gun and to defend themselves. And once again, we see that the shooting has stopped because a good guy interfered. Now, the good guy didn't have a gun. He had to wrestle. He had to tackle. He had to fight. Uh, but it was a good guy that stopped the carnage in this case and didn't, you know, prevented it from getting any worse. Here's the important thing, right? The important thing is that we know in cases where we have an active shooter situation, okay, an active shooter event, uh, which is what this is classified as. It also is it qualifies as a a mass shooting per the FBI definition, uh, just just barely because FBI definition is four or more um, dead. Um, mm-hmm. which is what this was. And this was not gang related. So uh, this was just some weird random act that this guy decided to perpetrate. Okay. So, but we know in an active shooter event, which this was some, you know, basically in these events, these individuals are going to continue shooting. They're going to continue committing this act of violence until something causes them to stop or they choose to stop. Okay. And in most cases, they will continue shooting until they run out of ammunition, until the gun stops working, if that happens, uh, until they are interrupted by someone on the premises that interrupts them, interferes with their actions, or police arrive or are about to arrive, and the suspect hears the police coming and chooses to either put down their weapon and stop or take their own life. And in many of these cases, that is something that occurs, where they, they will commit suicide when they realize it, it, the, the, the party is about to come to an end, right? And so what we do know is that when someone can take action, in, you know, which is what James Shaw Jr. did here, it will bring things to a close typically sooner than it otherwise would have. And mm-hmm. that's what's, uh, you know, that's the big thing to take away from this is, you know, put the guns issue aside, but just understand that for all the rest of us, if we're in a situation like this, I mean, I hope I can have my gun with me, right? Like that would be ideal. Like it would have been better perhaps for James Shaw Jr. if he was trained and packing his gun and maybe had a concealed carry permit or whatever, right? And he could have just taken the shot and taken the guy down instead of bringing himself, putting himself in greater dangers as he had to tackle this guy, right? And so that would be ideal, but that's not what happened. But it didn't keep him from taking action. And that action was critical. It stopped this from being worse than it was. Mm -hmm. Yep. So um, as to some of the other issues, I know that some would say, hey, you know, we had a crazy guy that was able to get a hold of a gun. And honestly, we could pass all the mental health laws and other things that we want. Um, but if you got a crazy person whose parent or brother or sister or friend for whatever or next reason, door neighbor who's not home right now. Yeah. You know, and it, whether you steal that weapon or they lend it to you for whatever reason, you, you just you can't stop that from occurring sometimes. I mean, hopefully we can all be responsible gun owners and protect our weapons and protect them from people that shouldn't have them. But these things happen. Well, 
congrats to, I mean, seriously, congratulations to James Shaw Jr. Because he may not think of it, and he's very humble. If you watch his, his interviews, he's like, ah, oh, I just, I, you know, I wasn't doing anything. Just, you know. But the reality is, is he actually is, in fact, a hero. Uh, people's lives were saved because of his actions. We have another hero in today's news stories. Jacob, I'm going to let you take the lead on this story. Uh, yes. In Florida, also a few days ago, uh, on uh, April 20th, there was some, a lot of things going on that day. You know, you got, you have some, you know, celebrations in states like Colorado being, you know, 420 and all. And you had some, <laughs> some students in other places marching, uh, uh, honoring those lives lost at the, during the Columbine shooting, which happened 19 years ago, um, which I thought was, you know, that that's a nice thing to remember is to remember the lives of those uh, lost and to honor them. Um, but you also had some students maybe marching as well and doing other things, protesting gun laws in this country. One thing that occurred was on Friday, a uh, individual, a student, shot another student in the ankle, and that was brought to a stop by as it quotes here, according to the CBS uh, Channel 3 uh, news affiliate in Florida, uh, a hero officer stopped this from perhaps getting worse than it was. Mm -hmm. Deputy Jim Long is a school resource officer who stopped the shooter. Well, and stopped is interesting because I don't know that that's entirely the most accurate thing. But what it says is essentially the resource officer, Deputy Jimmy Long, heard a loud bang and rushed to the scene. Three minutes later, the officer took 19-year-old into custody without resistance. So it's not clear if he really had to engage. I mean, it sounds to me like he did not engage the shooter in a shoot. You know, he didn't have to shoot back. That it was the type of situation where he was able uh, to take the shooter into custody without resistance. So that said, he's definitely still a hero. And and almost certainly, he still saved lives because we don't know what was happening next. Uh, Most of the time, random students don't walk into schools with guns and just shoot one other student and say, all right, I'm done now. You can arrest me. So without question, the school resource uh, officer, Jimmy Long, did his job, did it well. And and I think a lot of people are really grateful. And uh, it is interesting that this took place on the day when you know, nationwide you got a bunch of people you know, marching out of school protesting uh, gun violence, you know, however they want to define that or think about that. Uh, but here we have somebody who's you know proven proven the point, right? Which is that armed resistance will stop threats. And yeah. it works very consistently and well. And uh, yeah, I think this guy, he also redeemed, you know, the, the I think for, for many, the kind of the stigma that is stuck with the Florida uh, Sheriff's Departments, you know, across the various counties after the Parkland incident. And some people who didn't feel that those, those officers responded very effectively. Uh, Jimmy Long got it done. He did what needed to be done. I'll also add that I think it's impressive that he had the right amount of training or clarity or cognition to be able to go into this situation and take somebody into custody without resistance. Cause there might be a tendency for some to be like, Oh, there he is. He's got the gun. And you just start shooting away and bullets flying around in our schools with innocence everywhere. But uh, this guy had, uh, you know, did, did, did a very good job of stopping any f- future threats and, and prolonging the lives of all around. Well, I suspect, you know, I mean, this did not appear to me that it was that it was or that it was it was going to be um, a mass shooting. Okay, I don't know what was going on between these students, these two students. I don't know why the one kid shot the other kid in the ankle. Um, you know, and I I think you were kind of hinting at that a little bit as to well, not sure 
so much about what this officer actually stopped per se, but you, but the, the point is you really don't truly know. And, but he did take actions that unfortunately we didn't see happen in Parkland. And then that is a valid point. We had a, a, unfortunately a school resource officer at the Parkland shooting that did not run to the threat that did not run towards the gunfire. As far as we can tell that, stayed back, stayed outside, that established a perimeter, um, you know, and, and, and made sure that several other cops that arrived on the scene did the same. But this school resource officer, immediately upon hearing the gunfire, went to the source and apprehended the shooter. And I suspect, you know, you're going to use judgment, I hope, in a situation like that, where you see, okay, this guy, this kid is no longer actively pursuing this, this shooting. Um, there's no need for me to take him out, but uh, instead to approach and um, make an arrest. Anyway, yeah, crazy stuff. Either way, you know, praise for the man for doing doing his job, doing it properly. Yeah, I do often wonder, here's just one thought, Riley, we don't have any details here, so I'm not passing any judgment yep. on the story specifically. But, you know, after the Columbine incident, basically, schools started getting really good at establishing what you and I would call a choke point, a single point of entry, right? An, an SBE where all the, the all doors in a school are locked except for the front entry doors. And that's where everybody has to come in. And at that point, in theory, they're checking in with the office. So every time I hear a story like this, I always think, okay, the school resource center had to, you know, heard a shot or something, had to run across, you know, some campus to get three minutes to get wherever, you know, the gunfire was. It always makes me wonder like, why is the school resource officer or other armed security personnel not just chilling at the single point of entry? <laughs> Every time I hear this, and maybe I'm naive, maybe I'm missing something. Maybe we need a second resource officer that just stands there at the front door and waits for someone with a gun to walk through. But it would seem that we'd be far more efficient if we stopped threats at the door. Well, I mean, you've got kids that are coming to school. And unless they're being searched and or going through a metal detector slash x-ray you know, scanner, to look at what they're bringing in the school. I mean, they can walk in with whatever, like, right. The students are able to get into school. No problem. They can bring probably whatever they want into that school, unless that school is actively screening that stuff. And frankly, I don't think schools want to be in that business. There are some schools that do. They tend to be in higher, you know, violence, uh, parts uh, of my you know, kid's school, which is an extremely low violence area. Once school starts. So, you know, at a certain time, I think I call it like, you know, I don't know, it's like 8 a.m. or something. At that point, in order to gain entry to the school, I have to ring a bell and wave at somebody. And they no, look at me, make know, eye but, contact, but, and let me in. But do your kids go through a metal detector? No, 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 of course not. But but you're, so you're assuming that the shooter brought the gun in in the beginning and then started the shooting later. And that's not what we see. That's not what happened at Parkland. I, I get that, but 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 we do have shootings where that is the case. Uh, the sure. shooting in... in uh, 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 Centennial, Colorado, a couple years ago at the Arapahoe high, high School. I mean, it's a student that at any time throughout the day, as a student, can gain access to that school, could come in with whatever, you know, and, and who, who's to know, right? So but he unless, had a, that was a shotgun, Riley. So he didn't stuff that in a bag and bring it in in the morning with the crowds. He he walked through the single point of entry with a shotgun. Sure. And then went to shoot people. It, but I don't know why. I don't know what we're like really discussing here. The point is, is like there's no, no there's nothing that keeps students at most schools from coming in. Uh, there was a kid at a school a couple weeks ago that was discovered with a handgun in his backpack that his dad forgot in there. 
You know, he walked, I mean, he, and the kid didn't even actually know it until at some point during the day, he opened up his bag and went, oh shoot. And he closed I his guess bag. What I, here's what I'm saying. I'm not trying to create a heavy debate. I, what I'm saying is, is the school resource officer is staged at the point of entry. Then someone walking in with an AR-15 or a shotgun is pretty obvious and can be dealt with immediately as opposed to the school resource officer being elsewhere on the campus and having to come when they hear gunfire. Yeah, I, I think it's a lot more complex than that. I mean, you yeah. have campuses that, that are huge sure. uh, shootings that might happen outside the campus, outside the secure part of the school. Uh, you got like my whole point was that a student can walk in probably at any time at a school like that with a handgun hidden in their waistband or in their backpack. And oh, hey, I'm student so and so. Here's my student ID card, and through the you know single point of entry, and and they can commit that act wherever they want on campus. That. It's, it's a lot more complex, right? I think what we recognize is that there's a lot of measures that could be and should be implemented in our schools as far as protecting our schools. And a real obvious one is removing the gun-free school zone piece and allowing teachers, staff, administrators, and others that the law permits to do so to carry potentially a gun on their person on and within that campus that may be able to react. I mean, my thought, Jacob, is if you got even just, I mean, if we go back to the interview I did with uh, Joe Khalil, were you part of that or was that me and Matthew? I don't know. No, I wasn't there. Okay. So Matthew and I interviewed Joe Khalil at the US, at the Concealed Carry Expo uh, and during the live broadcast we did there. And he, he, his organization, they're just calling for 5% of school staff to volunteer to be armed. Just 5% can make a huge difference. I mean, you're talking about 5% in a school where you've got maybe one school resource officer and you can multiply that into five or 10 additional other individuals that may be armed on that campus and may be positioned throughout um, all of the other parts of the school. That, That can make a huge difference as far as response times, right? Sure. So That makes total sense to me. Yeah. All righty. So next up, Let's move to Wells Fargo. Wells Fargo CFO says government, not banks, should set gun policy. And this is the response because you had the National Teachers Union cutting ties with Wells Fargo over the the Wells Fargo's bank's ties to the NRA slash guns. And, you know... (laughs) Uh, of course, we got everything that's just everything. Everything has to be politicized now, right? And so every little detail is being scrutinized, and because one bank happens to have an organization like the NRA bank with them or have certain services through them, so now everybody else got to freak out. And that's what we see here. We've seen this happen with other organizations as well. Um, yeah, so. <laughs> It's, it's dumb, right? But I like what this Wells Fargo CFO has to say. He says, um, government should set, set, should set policy where it comes to guns, not banks and businesses. Your thoughts, Jacob? Yeah, no, I think that I don't know. I have a lot to add other than way to go Wells Fargo for basically refusing to be politicized. I mean, they, they are whether they like it or not, but they're, they're, not, they're basically saying, hey, listen, okay, I get it. You want us to choose who we do business with in order to push our, 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 our uh, an agenda, whether it's political or it's a believed, perceived to be moral thing or not. Uh, Wells Fargo is basically saying, that's not our job. <laughs> it's, not, it's not our job to decide uh, who, who we bank with, um, you know, based on, you know, an industry or whatever. We, 
you know, we, we're going to go do what banks do. And yeah. it's not the, the job. In fact, I love this quote. We remain firm in our belief that the American public does not want banks to decide which legal products consumers can and cannot buy, end quote. And I really like that. That they're basically saying, listen, like the public doesn't want banks to get involved here because where are we going to draw the line? If if we decide at first that you know we're not going to, you know, we're going to be Citibank and not even let people use use their accounts and their credit cards to buy stuff from gun companies, then what? Are we going to now not let people buy cigarettes? And then we're not going to let people buy this. We're not going to let people buy that. And we're, how long is that list going to get? I ca- you know, is that our is that our job? Is that our role as a bank? Yeah. I don't think the American public believes that we should do that. Yep, I I agree. Obviously, it, it, it's just I appreciate Wells Fargo, even all the grief they get on other things that have happened in the past. And some people don't like big banks and don't like Wells Fargo and don't like Citibank. And you know, and I s- totally support supporting small and local businesses. I'm a member of a small credit union. I also have happen, happen to have some accounts at some other bigger banks because sometimes you, you need that. But I am appreciative of their stance on this that, hey, you know, like we're not going to get involved. I think that's the best way to go. Citibank, I think, has really stepped in it with their ridiculous policy that they've implemented. And uh, yes, you asked, you, you brought up a good point, Jacob. You asked a very valid question, and it is, where do we draw the line? What's next? When, where else do we start looking at, well, we're not going to do business with these people or that segment of the industry or whatever? So, yeah. you know, and, and you know, kudos, to, we got to give kudos where kudos are, des- are deserved. And so Wells Fargo gets it for today. That could change tomorrow. You never know. All right. <laughs> so... You know, there's an interesting story here that I actually really wanted to talk on a little bit, Jacob. And this one is from marketwatch.com. And it's titled, Are You Invested in Gun Stocks? Read this if you want to change that. And so, I mean, the the article itself has a very sort of negative tone towards gun-related businesses. And it's basically the, 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 the premise of the article is, you are probably right now, if you have if you have any money in mutual funds or even 401ks, there's a high probability that you have money that is supporting uh, firearm-related businesses. And there are a lot of people that are freaking out about that, just like you know this Wells Fargo, Citibank, you know drama. And so uh, I, I want to quote a little bit from the article here because this really sets the stage and I think communicates to the listener uh, where this is trying to go. The article starts out by saying, when Missouri mom Andrea Wainer heard about the Parkland, Florida school shooting that claimed 17 lives, she felt broken. But she also felt more motivated than ever to take action against gun violence. So at 11.30 p.m., a few days after the shooting, she emailed her financial advisor with a question she was almost afraid to ask. Could she take her $25,000 in retirement savings out of mutual funds that hold gun company stocks and move it elsewhere? It felt powerful, she told MarketWatch. As a 30-year-old mom, mutual funds aren't something that are even on my radar. But I thought, I have the power. I could move this money. I've never done anything like that before. But it felt good. (laughs) (laughs) There are probably guns in your 401k, the article continues. And it says, even if you've never personally bought a share in Smith & Wesson, there's a good chance you're invested in gun stocks, especially if you're a set-it-and-forget-it investor with, with retirement accounts and passively managed index funds. And so the art, the rest of the article goes through 
some ways that you can uh, find out whether you are in fact investing money in gun-related businesses and how you can avoid that. And then that's obviously where I, I take a strong uh, disagreement to the article because it's obviously very you know anti-gun in, in, in its approach. Um, and so I, I bring this to you all because <laughs> uh, I think that I see several questions that I have to ask. Uh, one I think has already been addressed. You know, it's what do we do as a as a society about gun related businesses and how we support or don't support those gun related businesses, right? And obviously, this is a pro gun podcast. This is a concealed carry podcast, so I I know where our audience stands on on that type of issue. the The other thing is. Well, and actually, this is really just an observation. I have to just sit here and, and, and state, Jacob, that I can't believe that we have demonized a completely legal and legitimate part of our economy, right? Yeah. Like, I, like we have to put this in context somewhere that, hey, yes, these people make guns and you might not like guns and you might have this idea that guns kill people, including, you know, especially innocent people. And okay, you know what? I get the touchy feely aspect of that. And you don't like that. At the same time, we have this thing in the country called a second amendment. And the fact that these companies make guns is a completely legal and legitimate business. But I feel like that the, the public, uh, opinion is is trying to like push that part that segment of our economy into this dark corner with all those other bad nasty things. I find that really intriguing and also incredibly disappointing. Yeah. Um <laughs> So, I'll point out a couple of interesting things in this article. I love that the article suggests that there's only one company that makes the AR15. <laughs> it says it's listing a, a list of companies that you might be investing in and it says the maker of the AR-15 assault rifle as in that list. It doesn't yes. specify which maker. maker we're talking about. Just It just suggests that there's only one. The, well, the maker. by that, they mean Bushmaster. Oh, sure. Because sure. that's that's the company that makes the AR-15, right? Right. No one Her, else ever does. Right. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so I thought that was fun. Um, but to, a couple other things that I think were worth pointing out here. There is a section that says, if you can't beat them, join them. Um, it talks about how you could buy you know stock uh you know as, as well and i think another interesting kind of thought uh that i have is geez if if everyone's out there trying to get their money out of gun companies it's a good time for me to buy i, I bet the price is dropping this would be a great time for all of us to go invest and purchase uh gun stock i i, I do appreciate what you said though about just kind of demonizing guns and gun industry um here's another interesting thought and this is in here somewhere now i can't find it but earlier when i read this it said something to the effect of, you know, bear in mind that, you know, that also means you're probably stopping. You're no longer supporting a company that's probably has military contracts. You're, you're, you know, you're, you were invested in a company that was selling stuff that, you know, to the Navy and to the Marines and to the Army, and now you're not anymore. And what about cops? I mean, if if you don't want to be invested in Glock because, oh my gosh, those Glocks. Come, well, yeah, most most cops well, carry Glocks, you know. So I also think that's another interesting thing, you know, piece of perspective here is to demonize. Guns and gun companies also means to not support what they're doing to keep our country safe. Yeah. Now, by the way, Glock is a privately uh, held business, uh, but as as are many gun related businesses in the industry, uh, and that is the other question that I was getting to, and I actually didn't quite get to. Um, 
because I felt like I had talked too long already. But that is the other question is, why are we, with some of these gun-related businesses, why are we in the public market? Because, I mean, one, yeah, we should be free to be able to do that. Companies should be free to be publicly owned and and all that stuff. And in fact, I think it's great. I, I, I'm sure I have stock. I don't know specifically, but I'm sure I have stock in Smith & Wesson. You know, through some or Remington through some roundabout way, right through various mutual funds or whatever that I, that I may have, but <laughs> but it's a very risky thing considering the uh, perception, the optics, uh, the touchy feely you know anti gun crowd out there uh, in, in the public um, opinion that I think has been swayed somewhat in recent weeks and months with recent shootings that are kind of turning a little bit negative again, unfortunately. And so I say, you know what, Remington and Smith and Wesson and a few of you that decided to go public and, or be bought out by, by publicly held and traded companies, you know what, you've sort of brought this upon yourselves to some degree, uh, private companies, private businesses, they're not affected by this kind of thing. I mean, they might be affected by legislation, but they're not affected by investors and banks and other companies. Well, they could be affected indirectly through, through banks, uh, like Citibank, obviously. But but they're not affected as or as easily affected as these publicly traded or publicly held companies are or would be. And so, it's hard for me to you know feel too bad, I guess, to a degree, because you you, you guys made the decision to go public like that. And unfortunately, when you do that, you're held to, I don't know if higher standard is the right, no, it's just the, the right winds word, of the market, but right? it, it just means you are, you are, that, that's the nature of the business of being a public business, right? Yep. So I think private businesses are, you know, you can control your own destiny right now. Anyway, something to think about. So we move on now to our Justified Saves segment of the podcast now. we got four stories we'll wrap up today's episode with that uh, I definitely want you to hear. First up, we have, uh, and Jacob, you read this one as we were kind of prepping for the show today, and you were just like, holy cow. Uh, the title is, and this is from mysanantonio.com, Police, mother fatally shot son as he was choking his sister. Now, just based on that, you might have this image of, 16-year-old boy choking 14-year-old sister and mom shoots, you know, the 16-year-old son. It's not like that at all, uh, but it's still obviously very dramatic. A man who police say was fatally shot by his mother Wednesday night on the northwest side of San Antonio uh, has been identified. Jared Vincent Michael Brown, age 31. So this is a grown man, a grown adult, and I wanted to make that clear. He was fatally shot once in the chest at about 9.30 p.m., according to preliminary information from the San Antonio Police Department. Police said Brown may have been high when he went to the home and started yelling at his mother, who is aged 62, and his sister. Police did not indicate the sister's age. The sister ran upstairs and locked herself in her bedroom to get away from her brother because he has physically assaulted her before. Brown followed her upstairs, kicked open the door, and started punching her. Brown's mother grabbed her handgun and ran upstairs to find him choking his sister. That is when police say the mother then shot him in the chest and he succumbed to his wounds. Ooh, that's yeah, a little intense. Said, right? I mean, this is a situation where 
Uh, we would all love to believe that there just are no mentally sicko kind of people out there, but time and time again, we are shown and proved proven that there are in fact a lot of mentally sick people out there. And I, I, my heart goes out a little bit to people who have children that qualify and they're trying to figure out how to be good parents and what to do about these kinds of things. And I don't know all the circumstances. I don't know any of the backstory here. I just know that here you have a 60 year old, 62 year old woman who at least has one mentally disabled, you know, unstable child and she owns a gun uh, for whatever good reason. And uh, this is probably on her list of reasons to own that gun. And unfortunately she was, she had to use it. I mean, what is a 62-year-old woman going to do? Jump on the back of her 31-year-old son and, son and put him in a headlock? Yeah, that was not an well, option. That that's what that is one option. It may nah, not have been was, successful. Be very effective. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you know, he's choking his sister. I mean, he very well could have killed her. Yeah. Well, Definitely absolutely. Proportional, and it, and it did proportional say that, threat. that she had sustained injuries relating to this attack. So, I, you know, it, wow, it, obviously this seems so extreme and this probably does not apply to the majority of people out there even listening to the podcast. However, is this the first time we've shared a story like this on the show? Unfortunately, no, it is not. There have been a number of stories. I, I, I have vaguely in my mind. Three or four. Three or four. Yeah, it's, that seems yeah. about reasonable that were uh, of similar things. Where father against son, son against father uh, is typically what it is. In this case, a mother against a son uh, who is against a sister. And uh, it is intense. It is sad. It is tragic. Uh, but when we talk about the need to be prepared, that's prepared for no matter the situation, no matter the circumstances, you never know what you're going to be faced with. Uh, so, yeah, hopefully it doesn't come to having to shoot a brother, a sister, a son, a, you know, a daughter, a father, you know, whatever. But, uh, if that's what it comes down to, and it does say that, uh, you know, as of right now, it appears that this was in self-defense and the mother has been released from custody. So crazy stuff. Next up shots fired in a thwarted robbery attempt. This in Covington, Georgia. And I'm going to hand this one off to you, Jacob. Yep. All right, so this house goes down. Basically, uh, what you have is the homeowner arrives home when he's approached by an unknown male suspect brandishing a handgun who demanded his property. So stage this up. Imagine that you're like in front of your house. Maybe you park on the street. Uh, you know, that's not uncommon. A lot of people park on the street, right? So maybe that's you. You park on the street. You get out of your car. You're coming home from work maybe. And uh, as you're trying to walk toward your front door, someone approaches you. And they say, give me your wallet or give me your money or something like that. They demand your property. Now, here we continue. When the suspect raised his gun, the homeowner drew his own weapon and fired a shot. End quote. Then the would-be robber fled the scene and the homeowner observed a vehicle drive by at a high rate of speed. And after hearing what, was, what he thought was a gunshot, the homeowner fired a shot at the vehicle. End quote again. So this is this is fantastic. So the first part, I really I really like this because okay, you know, you're asking me for my wallet or my money or something, and I'm like, ah, uh, and you know, whatever's happening, you know, in that moment, I don't know if he was getting out of his wallet or what, if he was complying or not. But it says when the suspect raised his gun, the homeowner drew his own weapon and fired a shot. Now, from a very moral perspective, it's like, well, that's that's pretty good, right? I mean, at that point, if you're like, oh my gosh, he's raising his gun, he's about to shoot me, it's time for me to act. 
fantastic, right? That that seems like the some good judgment was executed there. It wasn't like, oh, you want my wallet? I'll shoot you now. It was more of, a, oh, oh, he's raising his gun. So debatably, you know, and and you know, who's to say if any of this is even true? But from what we can read, that's that sounds like a good lesson to be learned. But uh, I'll also add that drawing a gun on a drawn gun sure isn't very fun. And, and Riley, maybe you want to talk about that some more. But here's my other favorite part, right? Now, we, the guys run away. The BGs run off. We're like, huh, take a deep breath. I'm okay. Okay, all, all is well. And then I see this car come speeding past me really fast. And I'm like, huh, I wonder if that's the bad guy. And then I hear something that I think is a gunshot. Um, and maybe I think that the bad guy just shot at me from the car. I'm like, oh, no, he just drove past me and shot at me. So then the homeowner turns and fires a shot at the vehicle as it's speeding away. That's generally discouraged. That was definitely, yeah, that uh, caught my attention too, obviously. Uh, On the surface, I kind of go, okay, I understand. If that dude was, if that actually was a suspect and he's actually in the vehicle driving by and he's actively shooting at you, I, I think it'd be pretty hard for a judge or jury to find you guilty, uh, like uh, find finding fault in you continuing to defend yourself from that sort of attack. However, he said he heard what he thought was a gunshot, right? Like he didn't say they were shooting at me. Yeah. 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 yeah that that's boy. That's um, mm, Yeah. <laughs> And, and not having actual confirmation of that vehicle is, in fact, the vehicle being driven by the, in fact, you know, dude that just tried to kill you, potentially. You know, like that's, there's, these are the lessons that we have to look at when we read stories like this, that hopefully for you listeners, this is of value to you that, okay, think in your mind. If you're, play this situation out in your own mind, a couple of things, you're right, Jacob, I would note the fact that he drew his gun when the suspect began raising his gun at him. Boy, you know, you, you got guts, man. Like that's whew, you, good, good on you for having, you know, some big guts. <laughs> I, I might be inclined to say something else, but anyway, you know, like that's, uh, that's a pretty gutsy move right there. Uh, you better have a really good draw and be very consistent at it. If that's what you're going to attempt to do. All right. Otherwise you ought to be looking at some other, uh, things such as delaying, looking for a distraction or trying to create a distraction or looking for some other opportunity opportunity to get the drop on this guy because he's already got the drop on you at that point. And that usually you are the person that's disadvantaged at that point. However, if you are going to act, you need to commit to that action. You need to follow through with speed, with precision, with intense, you know, aggression. You need, you need to have very, a very committed follow through to whatever action it is you're going to to, to do when, when you decide to draw the gun. Because if you don't commit, if you do not appear to be committed, that will show weakness to your adversary. And now that could potentially put you in, in greater risk as well. So anyway, mm-hmm. but the whole shooting at the gun or at the vehicle as it sped away, not having confirmation as to the identity of the person in that vehicle or of the vehicle itself, yeah, probably not a good idea. So that's why this this story stayed in the lineup today because I thought there were some good lessons to be learned from that. Here's another story with uh, all kinds of things to consider potentially. This one's a doozy. This one happened in Glen St. Mary, Florida. The headline is five charged in Baker County home invasion turned jet deadly shootout. 
Deputies say the home invasion was fueled by a social media feud. Uh, this is according to news4jacks.com. Deputies arrested, it says, five people, two of them teens, after a home invasion Sunday in Glen St. Mary at, it escalated into a deadly shootout, according to the Baker County Sheriff's Office. The Sheriff's Office said the five were among seven masked individuals armed with guns who barged into a mobile home on County Road 125 about 4 a.m. to confront four people staying there over a feud. This, according to the sheriff's office, the feud was fueled by derogatory and threatening rhetoric between the two groups on social media platforms and eventually escalated to this shooting. So first of all, I'm going to pause right there. I find it interesting that there's this feud and that it's primarily fueled or caused by these antagonistic posts between two groups of people on social media. That's ridiculous and dumb. <laughs> so be careful about what you're saying on social media. Uh, in a lot of respects, there's so many things I think we need to be careful with where it comes to social media. But it, it's amazing to me that you have seven people willing to go and break into this house and have a shootout with four other people at 4 a.m. because of some things that were said on social media. All right. Yeah. Clearly, they're not. They're just not friends. <laughs> so. Uh, it says here, startled awake by the commotion, those inside the home, and this is amazing to me, grabbed weapons and then traded gunfire with the intruders. And keep in mind, this is in a mobile home, which is not generally like the largest space. home that yeah. you might have. Like, I mean, you got seven intruders and there's four of you and you are startled awake and you somehow grab guns and shoot at these guys and they shoot at you. And it said, according to the story... It doesn't say any of the occupants of the home were wounded. I'm just like, yet they they shot and wounded several of the intruders. And one of those, uh, I think it was three of them that were wounded. One of those passed away. That appears to be a brother of one of the older intruders. Crazy story. So now five of these are arrested. Uh, Keep in mind, seven were involved. One is deceased. So there's really just one other dude somewhere, you know, that didn't get arrested yet, apparently, but five of them are facing charges. So pretty crazy and intense story. And, you know, I, I gave a, the presentation at the Concealed Carry Expo, right, Jacob? And one of the things I talked about, nine lies about gunfights, right, that we that I could bust, basically, that I could, you know, shed light on these lies because of things I've learned from sharing stories like this. And one of those nine, nine lies is that you are only going to be faced with one threat. And I give pretty good statistics that I think it's pretty close to 50%. It's, it's 40 something percent. So it's a, it's a high percentage of the shootings that, or, or gunfights, or it's justified save stories that we share on the podcast that in 40, I can't remember the exact percentage, 40 something percent of these that we have shared on the podcast involve multiple threats. And take it, you know, take it or leave it as far as that, you know, like take from that what what you will. There's a lot of things I can infer based on that statistic alone as far as, you know, the weapon choice that I might make, uh, the capacity, spare ammunition, whatever it is. But realize you might be, you could be, I mean, unrealistic, I know, for most of you, but you could be in a shootout with seven armed intruders at 4 a.m. Yeah. Kind of crazy. And it could be random too, by the way. In this case, it wasn't random. These people were, were True. targeted. 
Um, but we have seen stories with multiple armed intruders going into a home. Absolutely. Random, late at night uh, that we got surveillance, plenty of surveillance footage on that happening. So absolutely. Yeah, don't, don't assume this won't happen to you. Well, that, that famous, I, I say famous because I do see it referenced quite a, do, a few different places, but there was that shooting in Houston, Texas last year where the dude shot at four or three, three suspects or four suspects in a car as they engaged him in a shootout as he sat out in, fr- in front of his home. And he oh, happened yeah. to have his AR-15 handy, which is just amazing to me. Uh, Interesting, you know, for sure. You know, as far as I know from what I've seen in that story, there was no uh, apparent connection as to why those guys started shooting at him and vice versa. And he shot and wounded or killed all of them or something. It was pretty, pretty crazy and intense. Uh, but yeah, that's exactly right. Like you, it, it can be random. It can be multiple threats. Uh, you never know what you're going to be faced with. And at least 40% of the time and realize that by and large, most of the situations where civilians will find themselves in need of using deadly force to defend themselves, it will be in a home invasion type occurrence, or it'll be in and or around their home. So the odds would suggest to me that I should be prepared in or around my home to defend myself against at least two or more threats. That's yep. pretty pretty big lesson to take away. This is an intense one. Be careful what you say on social media, and let's leave it at that. Final story, Jacob. I'm handing this off to you to kick it off. This is from abcnews4.com. Title, Police Woman Shoots Man in Leg After Finding Him Tampering With Her Car in North Charleston. This is South Carolina. Yeah. So officers said the female confronted the male suspect at her car as she says he advanced toward her. At that time, the woman produced a handgun and fired one round, striking the suspect in the leg. The suspect was transported to the hospital for treatment. So, and and this took place, I think, in a parking lot of a bank, so I don't know that that's entirely relevant. So we don't, this is one of those interesting ones where, geez, you know, the details, the devil's in the details for sure, right? I mean, let me tell this this version of the story two different ways. Uh, One version of the story, um, a man uh, is chasing his cat that's escaped out of the house down the road and his cat has gone under this car and he's down there trying to get his cat to come out. And it's like, come on, kitty, you know, dang cat. And the cat probably belongs to his wife and he hates cats. And he's just really frustrated because this dang cat has caused him to have to run down the road. And he hears a voice from behind him walking toward him, something about get away from my car. And he stands up and he, He's got kind of this angry face because he hates cats and he walks, you know, takes a step toward this woman and says, hey, I'm sorry, but you know, boom, she shoots him. <laughs> right. Like the, the facts that we have from the news story would totally su- support that narrative. Now the narrative could be the opposite. The narrative could have been, um, this is a, the Unabomber uh, who hates first citizens bank. And he was putting a bomb under this car and uh, he, someone caught him in the act, and he was going to slice their throat open and put their entrails <laughs> on the ground. Jeez, like, Jacob. Both of those narratives are possibly <laughs> true. And so anyway, I, I just think that when we hear these news stories, we have to just say, well, these are the facts we have yep. and, and these are the things we can infer, infer from that. Um, but I, I guess one of my big lessons would be if someone's you know, playing with my car, I should maintain enough distance that I can say something and I can call them out such that if they do take a step or two toward me, I still have time on my side. I still have some space on my side and I can make some decisions Uh, because if I walk up right behind them and tap them on the shoulder and say, what are you doing? I'm in a a much worse situation tactically. 
Yeah. So I actually really appreciate some of the examples you gave, especially that first one, because it does put into context the importance of understanding the context of the situation that you're faced with. And that is not always easy to establish. Um, I I don't know what to say as far as, I mean, this woman draws and fires one round, strikes him in the leg because he is suspiciously doing something around or on or dealing with her car. And upon approaching her suddenly, I guess, as she uh, confronted him, she felt threatened for whatever apparent reason. Now, one important thing to understand here is if we were if we had Andrew Branca on explaining this situation and, and talking about the law as it relates to this, uh, I know that he would say, well, he may not say it exactly like this, but I know based on on reading his materials and having a number of conversations with him, and uh, he's a, tr- a trusted advisor to me and, and to this show now, uh, which we appreciate his support of. But anyway. I know that he would say you you can't just shoot somebody because you merely because you feel threatened, right? Like that's not enough. You've got like a, a, an important part of it is the the facts have to support those feelings, mm-hmm. right? Like there's you got to be able to articulate wh- why you felt threatened, and that's got to be based on something. Well, he kind of looked scary or mad, and he turned and started coming at me. I'm not convinced that that's enough, right? Now, we're not reading anything in any of the reported stories on this case that this woman's facing charges or that she was arrested. And in fact, in a related story, in fact, if you go to the link of this story, there is a link also to the story uh, um, from the same uh, news site. And there's a few additional... Details. I don't know how much clarity it offers, but it says here that 43-year-old Jason Stinchcomb of Georgia was arrested upon after he was discharged from the hospital from his gunshot wound. So he was arrested for attempted carjacking and robbery. So to me, that that does lead me to think that police, you know, they have a case against him, and that they believe that the facts show that he was attempting to carjack this woman and or her vehicle and or rob her. Okay, fair point. And in many states, a carjacking and or a robbery, particularly like an armed robbery, uh, would be close to, if not enough, justification to use deadly force. The fact is, though, Jacob, as you so very clearly illustrated, is the facts are not always clear. We don't often get a lot of the facts, and so we have to infer a lot from these stories that we share. Um, they did find, uh, it, like I said, there's a few additional details. They lo- The police located him lying on the sidewalk in front of one of the parking spots in front of the building, moaning and calling for help. This after he was shot. He had a strong odor of alcohol emanating from his breath. Um, and when speaking to officers, they couldn't understand what he was really saying very well because he was slurring his speech due to being uh, intoxicated. Here's another interesting detail from this other story, Jacob. Due to the extent of his injuries... An officer applied a tourniquet to his upper right thigh. So I, I think there's just another little mention here mm-hmm. and lesson as far as the need or importance of carrying trauma gear. Even a basic tourniquet sure. can go a long ways to uh, dealing with the potential wounds from from gunfights. You know, and so that's yep. why I carry one on me pretty much everywhere I go now, and and uh, take that uh, very seriously and very very much to heart. So, um, 
hard to know exactly all the details of the story. It does appear as though it's it's an apparent carjacking slash robbery. She defended herself, is likely not going to face charges. However, to your point and the exercise that you provided, Jacob, the mental exercise of trying to imagine what the possible scenarios might be, I think does have value for, for us and for our listeners as far as making sure we, as best we can, understand the context or at least can articulate the whys, the whats, the hows, the whens, whatever, the whos, um, as it relates to why specifically I felt my life was in danger enough that I needed to draw and, and or use my gun. And that goes back to Andrew Branca's case of the week in the beginning of the episode, talking about, yeah, a simple punch is probably not enough. So, yeah. Good, uh, good thoughts. Yeah, all valid. Uh, just, just a lot to consider here, right? And, and these are the questions that that we bring to you, the listeners, on the Concealed Carry podcast. And I know we sometimes leave things open ended because some things just simply can't be answered. And the big takeaway today, uh, because of uh, Mr. Branca's case of the week, is that things can't be as simple as always, you know, always being black and white. Um, well, this happened and thus I did this. It, it, it's not always that way. In fact, probably more often than not, mm, I don't know. It's hard to say. It may not be that way. So, um, Either way, it's not a choice you get to make. Yep. Prepare yourselves. Prepare your minds. Understand the law. Uh, Andrew Branca has a great resource for being able to understand the law. And it's been very helpful for me as I have read through his materials and studied from him about the law. And I take things from him all the time now and implement that into the classes that I teach and also in my own personal application. So there you have it. That is a wrap for today's episode of the Concealed Carry Podcast. This being the news-focused episode of the week. Hopefully those justified save stories were good for you as well. A reminder that today's episode is brought to you by tonight's Guardian Nation Live event, together with special guest Beth Alcazar. I encourage you to check that out and and join us tonight. This is at 7 p.m. Mountain Time. That would be 9 p.m. Eastern. Uh, and if you're on the West Coast, it'd be 6 p.m. Uh, Pacific Time. So join us tonight, 7 p.m. Mountain Time. Uh, go to concealedcarry.com forward slash GN Beth a g n b e t h a to uh, make sure that you you are a member of Guardian Nation and that you know how to access and join us for Guardian Nation Live. Where you'll see face to face with us, uh, our interview with uh, with Beth, and be able to ask your questions. And I would encourage the guys out there that are Guardian Nation members that you might have your your significant others, your wives, your girlfriends, whomever, sit down and sit in with you on tonight's session because we will definitely have kind of a, a very heavy female shooter type fo- focus as we talk with Beth because she's she's very good at uh, speaking to I guess you know the needs of female shooters as she educates. Uh, uh, through her her blogs and through the articles that she writes in Concealed Carry Magazine. So that's uh, the first ad spot. And, then, and the second one, again, just a reminder to uh, support. You can support the podcast by, if you haven't already picked one of these up, head on over to concealedcarry.com forward slash CERT, P-P, S-I-R-T-P-P, and pick up one of the CERT pocket pistols. If you don't have one already, it'll be an invaluable training tool for you in your personal dry fire plan 
if you carry a kind of pocket-sized pistol as part of your concealed carry, uh, uh, you know, sidearm, well, pick up one of the cert pocket pistols, concealedcarry.com forward slash S-I-R-T-P-P. Jacob, any last words, thoughts that you want to leave with the with the folks? No, dude, I'm good. Right on, brother. Well, we will see you again later this week on the uh, Concealed Carry Podcast. We're we do we're supposed to have an interview with an individual, and I w- there's a couple of details that are still up in the air a little bit on that. So I, I I'm going to hesitate on on saying you know, on on giving all the details out because uh, we're still working on finalizing and formalizing some things there. So, uh, but we will be live again at some point later this week. Should be a great interview. And we look forward to seeing you then. And so with that, a reminder to train right, train often, and train safe so you can fight hard, fight fast, and fight true. Take care. vary from place to place, and we encourage listeners to seek local legal advice to understand applicable laws. The Concealed Carry Podcast, Concealed Carry Inc., ConcealedCarry.com, and their affiliates strive to share insights and stories about firearm-related incidents and laws, but things could be different where you live, or laws may have changed by the time you listen to this. We cannot be held liable for your actions based on the information shared in this podcast.